site. Welcome to episode two of the Hindsight Podcast, where we talk to different folks from around the industry about what I think we all agree is a system that's uh, at very least uh, flawed, if not completely broken, trying to find solutions to some of the challenges that face us all in the uh, world of U.S. healthcare. So with that said, I am excited to introduce our guest number two. All right. Welcome, everybody. I'm super excited to have our guest today, Mr. Jason Davis. Uh, I have had the honor of working with Jay in the past, and uh, he's just got a interesting mindset. He approaches things from a different angle, and he brings some entertaining style to the way that he tackles uh, different challenging questions. So I'm very excited. I'll let him introduce himself a bit more. But uh, yeah, it's it's great to have you here, Jay. Go ahead. Give us a little background on you. Thank you, Steve. Well, Steve said it. Uh, we worked together for a long time, so it was uh, ten years with uh, approximately ten years with Global Excel, and so worked with Steve closely. I can vouch that he's a very bright fellow, a very good person. And um, but at a certain point, I decided I wanted to try something different, so I went down the consulting route, and I had one large U.S. client, and that was the FIA Group and worked uh, with them for about six years and then we actually merged our interests uh, just before the pandemic knock on wood and uh, helped build their provider relations department so all things claim uh, repricing negotiation settlement that was in my purview uh, just a couple of years ago i realized that we needed to really amplify our technology which of course was steve's is steve's uh, great strength i brought in i couldn't bring in steve i brought in someone else uh, his name's Scott Bennett, and uh, he's a technologist, and he's been bringing in a lot of automation to our processes. And so I kind of put myself into a sales role. So I'm chief revenue officer for the FIA group. I know I'm not on all the webinars, but I, I work with the clients uh, directly on, on our business development. And so it's an honor and a pleasure to be here uh, with Steve today and, and, and Heinz. Awesome. Yeah, we'll 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 uh, we'll definitely explore some of the different angles that Fia touches on today in our conversation. So, a few different subjects, I guess. I'd like to talk a little bit about RDP. I'd like to talk a little bit about uh, the whole IDR process and how the NSA really affected our industry because it's a it, you know, I think of it was a, a fairly smooth pond at one point, and somebody chucked this giant rock in called the ACA, and then somebody chucked another rock in there more recently. Uh, they signed it in what uh, I think uh, 2020 and came into effect January 1st, 2022. So that whole No Surprises Act, I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. You know, we're about a year and two thirds in, let's call it. Um, what has it done? How has it changed the world? And, and what do you see as impacts? Yeah, absolutely. Well, you brought it up, right? So U.S. healthcare has been on a journey of patient protection, right? So very large, very lucrative industry you know if it was its own country u.s healthcare would be what top four top three and so the unfortunate part is that consumers who don't really understand how all these things are supposed to work um get caught up in in a buzzsaw and so the aca at least stopped you know lifetime 
you know, lifetime annual limits and, uh, or lifetime limits rather, and really forced the pair community to pay something on out of network. So, and then there was the greatest of three. Now, what it didn't do is it didn't say that the provider community had to accept it. Um, it just left that, you know, in the hands of a financial assistance program or FAP. And that was that. So insert no surprises act. And really it does force um, both sides to try to play nice uh, with each other and leave the consumer out of it. What has happened and you know, since then? Well, not to mention that there was coming off a pandemic, but it's been really hard, I think, for the provider community. I think they were making a lot more, potentially a lot more revenue in the out of uh, network space. So we've seen some shrinkage on revenue cycle management companies and even providers own billing departments. They seem to have kind of shrunk uh, in that regard. In terms of the good, the good from the human side is I think a lot less Americans are getting squashed by balanced bills. Keyword is less. So I would say that while both sides are trying to metabolize the change, consumers are still getting kind of caught in the crossfire, just less of them, um, thank goodness. Now, in terms of administratively, it's been a complete gong show uh, between the lawsuits before, during, um, you know, the pauses with IDR, which we're in now, which means the backlog is is incurring, the raise of fees from 50 to 350 back to 50. Um, you know, we're really seeing a program that is being crushed under its own weight and so the first chapter you could really call what we think we would have all expected to one end, you know, is that it's completely messy and that it's only doing what it's intended to do at a very low percentage. Um, so whether, whether you want to say 50% or less, we have many years before this very complex uh, and important function gets figured out. So very interesting you say less because that my experience and uh, on a daily basis talking to different folks, balanced billings are still happening. It's they're not supposed to be happening. But as you say, I mean, for, you know, you take any one given hospital, the size of that hospital to implement that change within a, a structure that large, it's it's a huge change for them to absorb. Things slip through the cracks. People are still getting balanced billed. Um, do, do you think it's ever going to reach its ultimate goal of of stopping that? Such a good question. I'll actually send you something later, but it was a testimony by Diana. Diane Spicer, supervising attorney, community health advocates in New York. She just goes on to describe everything, you know, that we are talking about now, uh, which is that people in her community, you know, 30, 40 calls a day are are still getting kind of hammered. And these are not, of course, some are, are of low means and they're very confused. Some people are doing everything right and still getting hammered away. Um, there's a big issue about languages you know what's your first language and did you sign a consent form so there's this whole consent form waiver and so some folks are maybe first generation american uh, or have just moved and their first language is in english so they have these complicated forms one of dozens that they're asked to sign and they're getting uh hammered on uh, with some balance bills will we ever get there I'm an optimist. I'm in sales, so I have to be an optimist. You know, I do believe it. I believe, I do believe that when everyone gets up in the morning in U.S. healthcare, especially on the provider side, that they are mission-led 
and hurting people financially. I don't I don't know. I don't live in a world where people actually get up in the morning and want to inflict uh, financial uh, harm to a consumer. It's just that with all the incentives and the structures and the money flowing, people just some of them turn a blind eye and they say, I only do this. I'm not really responsible for that. And I think we do have to kind of step up and be a little bit more open minded to it. It's all fun and games unless it's you. And let's face it, it's not going to be you and I, Steve, because heck, we live in Canada. You know? <laughs> but, but besides that, you know, it's it's other folks. And, and uh, so I do think we'll get there because the stakes are too high. There's too much pain that happens when it, it's not managed well. And for me, I mean, you talk about if your primary language is in English, even if your primary language is English, I mean, unless you've got a college degree in something legal, oftentimes those contracts are not understandable. And and yeah, I agree with you on the on the on the systemic side of things. I don't think people wake up and say, I'm going to screw people over and, and cost them a fortune and, and bankrupt them with medical debt. I don't think that's the intention, but the system is designed in a way that the incentives encourage people to take actions that are harming other folks. And, and you know, you and I, I think, probably on the same side of that that fight, if you will, to try to protect those individuals. And I think the whole, you know, IDR process, the QPA, I think it's an interesting concept. I'd love to get your thoughts on, is that helping protect people? Is that helping to get to a middle ground that makes sense for, for folks? Or, you know, you mentioned earlier, the backlogs, everything else, is it just creating another massive hurdle and possibly some other perverse incentives that are damaging the system. Yeah. You know, I, I do think, I do think that one step at a time. And so the first step of at least declaring that consumers should not be balanced billed and having a structure. I do have front row seat you know, FIA touches clients from all over the country. I do have front row seats to bad actors on both sides, the payer community and the provider community, really kind of going a little a little hot and heavy. And I think, you know, we work in negotiations and there's, there's a philosophy that says you, you might as well start on as far extremes as possible because you typically land somewhere in the middle. I would say that I've seen evidence of, of large systems and, and payers kind of adopting that philosophy. And that let's just stretch the extremes outward because we're going to land somewhere, you know, whether it's two years, five years. Heck, when you're talking about government interventions, we could be talking about a 10 year cycle here before we're on the other side of something that resembles organized. So. Again, it's helping, but no, I think chapter one is is that it's messy. And it, you could even wonder if if there's some sabotage components, like what what is it? Seventy five percent of the IDRs are from ten organizations. You know, like these are not. So there's a lot of systematic clogging of the system that you know one could wonder about. And uh, so I don't think it's. I think it's helping net to the net, but we're just a percentage of what's possible in terms of the total help that it can bring uh, to the consumer base. Absolutely. You mentioned the start at the extremes, right? I'm going to start way down here. You're going to start way up there. Hopefully we meet somewhere in the middle. I've heard it phrased, and and I believe this, that at a good negotiation, both parties lose equally. No, nobody leaves truly happy. Um, is and, and, you know, I've read some of the results. I've seen a few of them. The result of, of that whole process, are they 
leaning more towards one side or the other, or are both parties leaving up equally unhappy? <laughs> you know, it's uh, it's hard. You know, we 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 feel like the pair community is is doing very well overall uh, in in that process. Uh, I would say that I have seen. You know, I agree with you. A deal both sides hates is a good deal. I haven't seen a ton of that. A lot of it is because with baseball style, it's one or the other. And so it's you either hate it or you love it because it's either one or the other, I guess, the way they have it struck up. Um, I would say that the dominant, put it this way, if the question is, are the providers and payers happier? I would say that the number one headline is that the administrative staff on either side, including the government, are the losers because the dominant case study is an ineligible claim that has to get, you know, looked at, studied, proposed, you know, rejected, or they're ruling because someone didn't show up for the IDR, but they never filed the open negotiation in the first place. So then you have all of this work only to start at net zero because the claim was never eligible under the NSA in the first place. So we um, the administrative bubbles on this thing is the number one headline. And if I had to give gun to my head, I'd, I'd give it a slight lean towards the pair community on uh, on because this is going to sound terrible and it's not meant to. But I think if you look at managed care history in 45 years, I would say that the table has been slanted slightly more on the provider community than on the payer side. And so if you extrapolate from that and say administratively, who has the chops to actually like lean in, know what's going on, put in the effort systems, the dominant party sometimes can actually be the, the less strong in terms of managing a new process. Whereas I think regulators, have targeted the pair community more. So they're more used to pivoting around the process. So I think chapter two might be, you might see it as the provider community counterpunch. You know, we'll see. I don't know. Uh, in, in, in my mind, there's there's a kind of a system-wide trend here. If I may, let's say a large insurer, my incentive is for my premium to go up because it's the only way I can make more money. And if I'm a provider, I actually want to charge more, which forces the premium to go up, which gets me more money. So for the this process to actually have a positive effect for the consumer, they have to go against the incentives of both of those parties. And it's the small, in my mind, self-funded, self-insured. They're the people that are going to gain from this. And it's the end consumer, the patient, who's going to gain from this. And I'm I'm excited to hear you actually say that you think it's leaning slightly towards, let's call it the payer side. Uh, because that does indicate that they're trying to help the consumer. They're trying to help the self-funded, the the small employer who can't afford, you know, a, a 20% hike from their insurer every year. 100%. I think if I wanted to put my provider hat on, uh, which I rarely do, let's be honest, um, it's not. I'm not anti-provider at all. I just rarely put on that hat. But just trying to bring balance to the, exactly what you said. I think what I'm reading from their side of it is. And we knew this by hitting the out of network, especially the emergencies. If you were of, you know, a provider out there who wanted to kind of play the out of network game, you know, the game is more or less up. So then you contract back in network. But also if you were a provider system that only was contracted with because you were so 
deadly on the out of network side. Well, now you can actually get kicked out of the network or renegotiated. So in California, when they instituted something like the surprise, um, the No Surprises Act, they actually saw their in-network rates drop. And I think what you're hearing now is between the pandemic, which burnt out uh, practitioners um, terribly, and it still is, it's, it's bad. Every article you read is either doctor union striking, nurses striking. The bottom line is, is that the provider community is saying, because we're kind of getting choked out, your care, everyone's care is being damaged because of the out of network. Now, I think that that's a little bit of a, a reach because by percentages out of network, you know, is much, much lower than what your in network is. But to your point, I do think the pair community benefits. I do think hopefully the consumer base will see that. But the latest reports are that premiums are rising by like 8.6%, which I think is more a reflection of inflation than the No Surprises Act for crying out loud. But, you know, they, that's kind of the narrative that I think they're uh, championing right now is that this ultimately hurts all of them and all of us, the consumer base for all care. It's fascinating that all of this is play, playing out on that backdrop of inflation that has gotten through the roof because it's, I mean, you look at the pandemic and, and clearly insurers had lower costs during that time. You see record profits on all the insurance side. Every article I'm reading lately, they're making money and they're, you know, hey, it, it, that care goes down, their premium stayed the same. And 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 yet we see this huge premium increase this year. And, and the article I read recently talking about the 8.6%, that's lower than it was anticipated to be. They thought it was going to be up around 11. So they're pleasantly surprised at eight, um, which is, Good, but how much of that is just the cost of everything, the strain on trying to get qualified people to come back to work, and and you know, as you said, everyone's burned out after that pandemic, and so you're having to pay, you know, more and more on salary, throw more at benefits to get people in the door to 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 work. So, how much is this going to have an effect when the background is crazy inflation and challenges all across the the, the employment market? Uh, it's a perfect storm, really, when you think of it. So historically, U.S. medical inflation has always doubled regular inflation. So if anything, since the pandemic, what we've seen is, what's funny is we talk more about medical inflation since the pandemic, when as a ratio of total inflation, it's never been more balanced even now. But it's just that last, you know, hurting piece um, that's into it. But if you think about U.S. healthcare and how it's built, U.S. healthcare is the largest healthcare system in the world. So you'd think it has the most hospitals in the world, but it doesn't per capita. It doesn't. It's actually lower than the average. Well, you think it would have the highest doctors. It doesn't. It has lower than average doctors. What it does have is higher than average nurses and machinery and, of course, drugs, drug prices. The entire system is designed to generate money. So now you have pressure on the physician community and the nursing community on a money-making backdrop with inflation and a pandemic. It's the perfect storm. The No Surprises Act, if, if anything, it could be seen as a footnote in that narrative because that is just crushing. So I would give the tilt in that direction in terms of what's more you know, heavy. I, I certainly hope the No Surprises Act is gonna have uh, an impact, I think, you know, crystal balling the future, inflation has to slow down, and I think things are going to stabilize. So 
hopefully when that happens, we can really see the impacts. And by then, maybe we will have figured out a bit more about how the No Surprises Act is going to work. And if the, you know, the, the powers that be can get the system flowing the way that it was intended, um, maybe we'll see some results by then. Now, I'm curious, in the background of all of this, probably 10, 12 years ago, RBP started to emerge. Um, yeah, certainly it has gained a footing if 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 anything it seems to be growing you know almost exponentially in the last few years how does all of this play together how does how have you seen the rbp movement where it's going what you know we'll talk about all the challenges that are involved in it but how does the the whole no surprises act play into that and and i don't think anyone really foresaw in my mind i don't think anyone really foresaw how it was a footnote it wasn't thought about it wasn't considered and now it's like oh this actually has a big impact, I believe. Oh yeah, I mean that is that is a broad question. I'll 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 maybe piece it together, you know, in its nearest form. So out of network management, I think that there's traditionally been two schools in out of network claim management. It's kind of been like a stack of supplemental PPOs, maybe with some smart discounts, direct negotiations, UCR, like a funnel, right? The classic, what's in your funnel? Here's our funnel, blah, blah, blah. And I think a big part of that was to try to get as many claims into a secured environment as possible, you know, secured versus non-secured. Well, with the No Surprises Act, I think that even conservative payers are saying, well, if the emergencies are now covered under this infrastructure, then maybe it's time for me to consider a RBP model for my out-of-network management. So I do think that that's at least one micro trend there, but I'll stop there. Otherwise I could talk about RBP and all its flavors for like the next 15 minutes. But what, what do you think about that kind of first initial? I agree. That's been my kind of read on things is that, you know, people were very elected. First of all, RBP has, has, become more mainstream. So people are hearing a lot more about it. So just that familiarity with the concept, maybe somebody across town that you know, they're actually on an RBP plan. That has has bred a, a comfort level with the concept. I think initially it was like a hands-off. But then you bring in this, this dynamic of, hey, there's this new regulation that says your people can't be balanced still, at least on the emergency stuff, which as we talked about, in practice, it maybe has reduced it, but it hasn't eliminated it. But that sentiment that that that's there's this protection there for my folks. Why not dip a toe into that water and test it out a little bit more? So I think that has definitely accelerated the growth, at least as I watched through the pandemic and I just listened to people talking about what am I seeing out there? What are the interesting trends? RBP was more and more and more over the last at least two years, if not three years, just people were willing to give it a shot. Yeah, in terms of full RBP, what a journey that's been. And I <laughs> I was lucky enough to kind of be, you know, I kind of uh, left one context into the FIA context early in the RBP days. So I kind of saw the front row seats. But, you know, in the early days, you had a few players, right? And most of them had a very similar structure. They accessed a physician only and then did RBP on, on facilities because that's the majority of the money. And then you have, you know, clones of that model kind of mushroom all over the place. Well, now you're definitely seeing pressure on access to the practitioner only networks out there. So the provider community have not 
traditionally loved RVP. Again, they were in control of the chessboard for 45 years. Why would they ever allow, you know, that dominant position to, to, to stop? Now we're having direct to employer uh, contracting emerge. So less pressure on accessing a network, but still there. And now the pressure is continuing down on the network side. And we're seeing, at least I'm seeing, kind of more emergence of direct primary care as trying to control that first step in the member journey and then riffing off of that either with direct contracts or even, you know, and trends get overstated. They always do. But like medical tourism, just going somewhere else and putting pressure, you know, or relieving pressure from the from the local system and saying, hey, if you're not going to give us, you know, a reasonable shake on our money, we're going to you know, we're going to look elsewhere. So RVP has definitely evolved. I think we're, you could you could probably say we're in the third generation. If I had to say the Wild West, right? More blue collar, 2.0, you know, some direct contracts, you know, more physician, and then now, you know, really narrow, but quite evolved. Um, you know, RVP is not, a, is not a joke. When I started, maybe 1% of our client like if you took our whole block, so about 1% was RBP. Now it's hard to find a TPA that doesn't have 10% just by default. And that's any TPA, whether they wanted to or not. And then the ones that truly leaned into RBP, my gosh, it could be 70% of their block uh, is RBP. And they're all over. They're all over the place. I would say where you don't see them is in non-diverse uh, managed care environments. And so you could just pick your place on the map and and uh, but overall overall it's 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 good it's not a good fit for some brokers and employers some just don't want to touch it with a 10-foot pole so there's still a dominant market that just wants the old-fashioned give me a card give me a logo give me you know expensive peace of mind you know but that's changing i think with inflation i i, I believe it's a good thing if you just think about you know free market dynamics when you have a handful of very, very large players that kind of control the entire market, you need some emerging, maybe lower cost, a little bit out there idea that's going to shake up the market. And so, you know, as much as I watched RBP in the early days and I thought this is a little insane, um, it's evolving and it's changing and there's better approaches and it's starting to gain some market share and it's starting to shake things up. And hopefully it's going to keep things honest because it. I mentioned it earlier, if you think of the incentive, you know, with the ACA, 20%, that's the maximum you can make in profit. So the only way you can grow is for your premium to go up. So that incentive exists and it's it's the wrong incentive. I think everyone kind of recognizes it now, but these guys can keep you honest. They can come in at the small end of the market. They can get those smaller employers who are hurting, who want to go self-funded, who have no other option because they can't afford the increases that are coming from the other side. And now you got to, okay, maybe my premium can't just grow infinitely. Maybe I need to actually compete against some of this lower market stuff. So I like the dynamic that it's creating, but we're not, you, know, you said third generation. I probably would agree with that. I, you know, where exactly we are on that. I don't think we're quite there yet. I don't think we're at the point where it could become mainstream. But so here's here's my crystal ball question for you. When do you think it does or does it? Or, or does do, do one of the big guys come in and, find some defense mechanism and, and eliminate it. You know, do are, are we at that point where we're starting to tilt into it will become mainstream or, you know, what, what what's your crystal bar? 
ball. Try to see the future. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. <laughs> it's so hard to do it because of course this is recorded, so you can show it to me someday at breakfast <laughs> how wrong I was. <laughs> what I've learned in 20 years is that change is really slow. So if it took what it took, you know, 10, 12 years to kind of get RBP to where it is today, I would tell you that from where I sit, I see the large players investing in, they're diversifying their portfolio. So they're always going to own and drive and take what works. So think of almost like a, you know, um, startup embryo, you know, embryonic environment where they're, so everything will move kind of towards the the center. Like RBP, the small players overtaking the large players, I don't think that happens in my lifetime. Put it into what I see. What I do think is that over time, you know, it will, pieces will look the same from the current players as the large players are testing and, and investing what they're doing on that front. So I would say that smarter, regionalized, um, different settings of care that are kind of the things that RBP brought up, because instead of trying to have a network and carve everything out, they're starting blank and carving things in. So really starting with a needs-based uh, design platform. I think those notes, 20 years, I don't think, I don't think we'll di differentiate between one or the other. The self-funding will continue to grow because it's just a better, more open platform, I think, for flexibility uh, for employers. And I think that we're going to have more smart regionalized care so but i do think it takes 20 years because nothing things barely get done in 10 and that's my number for nsa even being out of the woods so 20 years for you know market retaliation slash correction becoming more or less mainstream with the larger players diversifying i think we see blended edges in 20 you know this is a big system guys it's it like the titanic trying to turn it just it doesn't happen fast as much as some of us you know who are energetic and want to see change and and bring new things and trying out you know around the fringes hey let's experiment with this the reality is for that to become a mainstream answer to something it's going to take probably 20 years if not more to to be honest you know i, I back to your optimistic point uh, i i do believe that we can see some significant change in the next you know 5 to 10 years but but it's not going to be a mainstream. It's not going to completely change the dynamic of the market anytime soon. Um, interesting. You know, I guess one of the questions I have as a as a consumer. So if you're if you're the patient, it's generally not your money that goes towards choosing which plan. I mean, sure, your employer offers you maybe two or three plans to pick from, but you're not the one sitting in front of the broker looking at all the different options and. And so you're kind of stuck with whatever plan you have. And if you end up with an RBP plan, my sense would be that maybe that wasn't your choice, but now you're actually kind of brought into the equation a little bit more and you become more aware of what's going on. Do you think that RBP is opening up you know, the, your, your average American's eyes to just how broken the system is and that they should be making more conscious decisions around their healthcare, or is it kind of forced on them and they're you know, unhappily going along with it. You know, I think the average American, you know, I think they get it explained to them and depending on the quality of the broker and the TPA, that'll be an excellent education 
But imagine being told something really clearly once and it goes against the entire template of what you understood your life to be. And maybe, you know, you make widgets for a living. You know, like I'm pretty dense. Sometimes I have to hear something multiple times before it really sinks in. I get very mindful about it. I picture myself in different situations. And I would say that the average American would still struggle with understanding. I had a card. I used to be able to go somewhere. Like it is a totally different ballgame. In terms of what we're seeing more and more is that employers are looking at the costs. And I do think at a certain point under ERISA, you do have to take the fiduciary part seriously. And so they are looking at saying, you know what, I can't make this choice for you, but I'm going to offer you two options. So we're definitely seeing dual options. Now, dual options does two things. One is you get to explain to your employees why what you've done to contain costs and that they can do it, but this is what it's going towards. So if everyone elects the more expensive option, then they can say, well, you've you've elected the most expensive option. This is reflected in your wages or how I'm able to compensate you or what incentives I have for you. Like, I think that conversation is happening, but I don't think the average given market penetration now, I, I don't think they would really understand it all that well. It wasn't long ago that an average American couldn't tell you what deductible or coinsurance meant or what theirs were. You know that and that was a popular uh, i think it was the bitter pill that highlighted that our healthcare literacy across the board is is just not high so you know who knows i had an interesting conversation a couple of days ago just talking to some folks and one of the things that i i realized in the conversation is your average american doesn't look at health insurance as a way to stay healthy they look at health insurance as when i'm sick i just want it to work like I, I don't I don't care at that because I'm not at the point where I'm thinking ahead. I'm at a point where I'm not feeling well and I just need to go in and and it just needs to magically work. There there shouldn't be any questions at that point. I think with RBP, with the dialogue ahead, with the education, as you mentioned, if you've got a good broker, you've got a good TPA, you've got a good plan that you're introducing, you're gonna start educating and you're start opening up that conversation. I think we're starting to see that. I don't know, you know, I mean, we're talking 360 million or so individuals that need to get educated on just how broken the system is, what the options are, what what it means to be proactive in your own health. Uh, but I, again, maybe it's my optimism. I feel like we're starting to open up a dialogue that is that is good for, for all Americans. I, I don't know what your take on that is. Well, I agree. I think that, you know, if you take two trends and move them into one, and you say, okay, the RBP trend brings the cost of healthcare home very close to home, right? And it becomes a very serious conversation. And once things are serious, people listen, right? If you're in a state of trauma, everything is focused, like everything is, you're listening. So RBP brings it home. I think the high deductible health plan thing tried to do that. But let's face it, unless you're pretty, not super affluent, but I'm saying you've got a little extra scratch at the end of the year you're you have a tax planner you're 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 doing all the efficiencies and you're eat, you're drinking green shakes and you're running all the time like there's there's definitely a portion of the US that understands their healthcare as a kind of health optimization platform and a financial 
optimization situation, but the average American that has not been their experience in terms of of how to leverage those tools. So I do think that everyone's trying to come towards the center from different ends, whether you're the big dog trying to cut costs and get and help, or you're a smaller player trying to bring RBP into the fray. You know, I think everyone's trying. I think the intent is there. It's just that the system's so hard to to navigate. But high deductible and RBP, these are two meaningful conversations about you, your health, and and the costs associated to it. I uh, I mean, high deductible from everything I'm reading, it seems to be that 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 trend's kind of I don't want to call it petering it off, but definitely lev- leveling off at at very least. Um, one of the things I saw recently was. Hey, here's this high deductible plan, and then here's this other supplemental plan that you can buy up that actually covers your deductible. And I and I thought to myself, like, doesn't that defeat the entire purpose? I now have insurance that covers my deductible. So how much am I paying for that to be able to just pay off my deductible through another plan? And you know, I don't I don't know. It seems to me there's a lot of people trying to do good things, and sometimes we end up a little bit off the rails. Um, so I, I guess my my question to you, maybe as a closing question, because I'm conscious of time. Um, if you had to predict where the QPA, the IDR, and the RBP trends are going to really converge and, and have a meaningful result, what do you think it looks like? Does does that whole QPA IDR process really solve some of the challenges that RBP has been facing? And and where does it end up? Is it you know maybe more on the payer side as you seem to be sensing right now, or does it balance out? Or you know. Give me give me your prediction on on how those two trends come together. Yeah, I'll keep it really simple. You know, the converse any conversation towards payment reimbursement and anything that is away from bill charges is a significant step towards a conversation of changing the entire <laughs> foundation of of reimbursement, right? And I think that that can only help all transactions. You know, I've spent more of my career than I care to talking about charges and how ridiculous they are and talking to providers about their charges and how providers said no one cares about our charges because no one pays them. Well, I've been on the front row where, yes, they are weaponized their charges and, and they have been tough to manage. So I think that we're seeing the, you know, it's diluting the charges in the conversation generally, which I think RBP, all RBP would say, I want a reference for what I pay <laughs> and it ain't your charges, bro. You know, and so I think that that helps in terms of the the out of network. I think if it's going to take 10 years to dismantle just the 5 to 10 percent of claims that are out of network on a mainstream plan, then you can extrapolate from there. Uh, but I do think it does bring the idea that there's there is a reasonable amount that healthcare costs and there's a reasonable amount of visibility on how that should go based on quality. So that's really the the convergence point. But I told 20 years for some of these trends, uh, I'll, I'll stick to that. I'll stick to, but I do love that we're no longer having a conversation that starts with the ghost in the room that is the charges that I think that is definitely waning and it'll have a, a more you know, grounding effect, I think, to transactions in, in healthcare. And that that can only be good. It's the only industry that starts with an MSRP that's just, you know, in, in some other stratosphere. Totally fictitious. Yeah. I fantastic point. You know, I I, I think 
both trends are on that exact point, that charges are not even a remotely reasonable approximation of what is a fair payment. And, and yes, on occasion, people get caught in the fray and charges are brought up and that's what you're supposed to be paying is the full build charge. But I think we all recognize that they're ridiculous and, and perhaps these two trends are coming together to, to finally change that dynamic a little bit. Jason, listen, it was great catching up with you. Always love to have the conversation. I'd like to give you an opportunity to maybe talk a little bit about what FIA does and just kind of give a plug for, for all the great things that that organization uh, brings to the market. I think most of our, our listeners are somewhat familiar, but why don't you give a, a, a little overview if you wouldn't mind? So really short, folks, 10 seconds or less. The FIA group, uh, we're a mission-led company. Uh, we really believe in lowering the cost of healthcare. It's just too expensive and the average American is getting hurt by it. We offer subrogation recovery services, uh, consulting and compliance services, and provider relations uh, services when, uh, when it comes to dealing with claims, very much like what we talked about today. So there you go, kept it light. If you wanna hear more, hit me up on LinkedIn or email, and I'd love to talk to anybody. Awesome, we'll throw your contact details at the bottom of the screen here. And uh, thank you, Jay, and thank you everybody for listening in today. Thank you, Steve. Really appreciate you having me, man. Hindsight.